and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week. I hope that you've had a fabulous week and managed to get some time for yourself, even if that's just a few moments. If you haven't had a chance yet, I want you to take the moment before you listen to this episode and just acknowledge a win that you've had this week. It doesn't have to be big. What is one win? We had a really eventful week back here. The boys, as most of you would have seen on Facebook, did a fundraiser where they cycled from Armadale to Orange, 520 Ks. There was a fair bit of rain, lots of animals. We like went past a whole pack of emus. It was actually really fabulous. And I'm just doing a massive shout out to Keith, Rob and Flinny who rode that whole way to raise money for one of our local conservatoriums. Great job, boys. And I also had a few suggestions from people to start an Instagram page for the podcast. So I've signed up. You can jump on challenges that change us Instagram handle and I'll be adding to the stories most days with some little helpful hacks that you can use in your life. But today I want to introduce you to Andrea Hansen, author of two books, mindset coach, master certified life coach and host of the international podcast, Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis, which I was privileged enough to be a part of a few weeks back. If you have not checked out her podcast, I highly recommend that you jump on and have a listen. I know you will just love it. Andrea was diagnosed with MS in her early 20s. In this episode, we talk about her changing her career as a result of the diagnosis, the welcome wagon that she first received on diagnosis, and the strategies that she's used over the years to write her own story. This episode is full of tools like walking meditation, finding your life advisory board and mindset tactics that you might be able to tuck away into your life toolbox. For anyone that has been told that you can no longer drink, stay out late, stress out, don't do anything that requires any kind of exertion, don't take long showers, maybe this is just the episode for you. So let's get into it. Welcome, Andrea, to Challenges That Change Us. It is so lovely to have you here today, all the way from America. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It's so great to be talking to you again. (laughs) And I love, I love to start our podcast with a couple of questions. And the first one is, do you have an animal that best describes you? And if yes, what is it and why? So I would say one of my favorite animals has actually always been the zebra which I know sounds kind of random, but I just- It also sounds random how you say it because you've got an accent. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this is so weird because I'm not the one with the accent, but that's okay. <laughs> why, why a zebra? I've always loved it because, number one, they just look cool. To me, they are always kind of punky. You know, they've got their little, their little mohawks and- I've always identified because they're actually they're actually quite mean, not that I'm mean, 
but they have kind of an attitude. But at the same time, they're very much herd animals and they like to stay with their herd. And so they're, and they're very intelligent. And I don't know, I've just always really identified with it. And then something that has also helped me identify even more is I went through my very first coach training. And they did a little bit of a manifesting exercise where you might have heard it, where it's think of something that's going to symbolize. In this case, it was success. It can be anything, right? Symbolize money, symbolize a relationship, symbolize love, whatever you want to do. In this one is think of something symbolizes success. And when you see it this weekend, it was a weekend training. It was in Arizona. Once you see it, you know that's kind of like the universe giving you a little wink, like, hey, it's coming. And so they said, think of anything that's going to symbolize success that you're going to see. And so I started thinking about it. I was like, I don't want it to be something like a cactus (laughs) you know, that you're going to walk out and just see. I wanted it to be something hard. And I was like, okay, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. What am I not going to see at a hotel in Phoenix, Arizona? A zebra. So I made it super hard. I was like, if I see a zebra, then I know. I know it's going to be this symbol of success and it's going to, you know, it's meant to give you like a little bit of juice, a little bit of excitement. And I was like, zebra. So of course I go the whole weekend, never see a zebra. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you? At the very end, I'm going through the gift shop with a friend of mine because we're getting little things, little magnets or whatever. And I just happened to look over and they had a little children's area. And there was a ball, like a little children's squishy ball with a cartoon of a zebra that was like (laughs) looking and it was like looking right at me. It was so crazy because the whole time I'm like, I'm not going to see a zebra. This is crap. This doesn't work. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, that's a zebra. That is a zebra in Phoenix, Arizona that's like winking at me. And so, of course, I got it. I actually didn't. I should have brought it to show show and tell. (laughs) It's upstairs. I have it. It's upstairs. But it was so crazy. So now every time I see a zebra, anything, I get like a little like, ooh, yeah, that's that's my my manifestation. It's kind of cool. And it also, you know, because we've discussed this previously that when you're, when you're running your own business and when you're in the coaching game, like sometimes, you know, we present to the world as like really lively and got it together and, you know, holding space for other people, but you can get really wobbly in that space as well, mm-hmm. you know? And so when you feel a little bit wobbly, having that little zebra ball there just to remind yourself of your North Star and where you're going and yes. why you're doing what you're doing would be so fabulous. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. it's so fun. And so to this day, like I've got little zebra figurines and like really cool stuff. <laughs> oh, and the other question I really love to ask is, did you have a favorite room or place when you were growing up? This is a really interesting one. And we were talking about this earlier. I moved around a lot growing up. So I lived in, I think, six different states by the time I was like 14. And so I didn't really have like a house that I grew up in or anything like that. It was always changing. But the constant that I did have in every single one of those places is an outdoor area. So when I lived in, like, I lived in Pennsylvania for a while and there was like this little forest with like a creek that all the little neighborhood kids would go and play in. And when I lived in Michigan, we had this huge rhubarb bush in our side yard and that I would go out and, you know, break off and eat rhubarb and kind of hang out. And in New Mexico, there was an arroyo that I would always go and walk in. And so it was always these outside spaces that I found solace in. So 
I think that would be kind of my favorite room would really be like outside of every house that I've lived in. Was there a reason why you moved so much? Yeah, it was my dad's job. So my dad was in education. And so he, as you as you work up through education, he started in, I mean, he moved around a lot even beforehand because he was doing his research and his doctorate and his postdoc. And you tend to do those all at different universities. And then you get in and you start your research track and you start to teach and then you can move up and you can become dean. And then you're, you know, you have these, you have tenure at a university and there's only a certain amount of times and there are people that can have tenure at that university. And so as you move up, typically it means you're going to a different university to be able, because a lot of times people, especially like if there's a specific research track, like he was a nuclear physicist and there's not a ton of those. And so- And a lot of times people will stay at that university and there's not a lot of openings. And so you have to look around at different universities to find that next space. And he was going up through administration. And so every time he moved up a level, it would be every four or five years and we would just move because he would move universities. Yeah. And when you look back on that experience, is there something that you gained from moving so much? Yeah, it's very different. I have friends who were born and raised in the same city and never left. Or the same house, same city, same school. Yes. I know. Yes. I can't imagine that. It's so different, right? Yes. (laughs) Me neither. I really liked, I mean, on some levels, I think it was... It was a bummer because I was always having to read, you know, make new friends and go to new spots. But at the same time, I think it really helped me exercise that muscle of being comfortable with change and Mm. being comfortable with, you know, I mean, not only did we move, but we would move to very different places every single time. And so there would be different mentalities and different types of people and different kind of everything, different food, different all sorts of things, different cultures in different states. And so, just getting to know all these new cultures, all these new people that had all of their own experiences and whatnot. I really liked that. And I really mm. noticed how much I like, because I also, we traveled a lot. So I love traveling. I love getting out and experiencing new things. Being able to move to different places, you're really immersing yourself. And yeah. I really liked that. So I actually, I do think that that's something that I gained from it. And what you said there around, you kind of get a picture of what change can look like. And Mm. also, I don't know if this was your experience, but for me, it allowed me to realize that if something's not working, you can change as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, it's okay to move and change and ebb and flow. And every environment looks and feels different with different people and you gain different things from each environment. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think sometimes even as adults, I say to people, why don't we change that up? And you can see just the eyes go wide and think, what? And I remind myself, ah, like change is so natural for me because I moved so much. Like every school and house for the first 16 years of my life, I moved. So it was just, yeah. So many different mm-hmm. experiences, but wonderful, wonderful. So that's not why we brought you on though. So let's get into <laughs> who you are, where you've come from. We have so much to talk about in this episode. Let's just spend the next sort of 10 minutes or so getting to know you and how you've gotten to where you are, and then we'll get into the challenge. Sure. Yeah. So do you want to take us through, you are an author of two books, a motivational speaker, a podcaster, and a master certified life coach. So maybe let's start with the books. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the two books that you have written? Sure. I wrote my my two books a little bit into my coaching 
career, which I changed. I was in a different career. Before then, I was in finance, actually. What? And then actually in school for something very different as well. So talk about change, right? (laughs) I've got that down. But yeah, I was in finance and then I moved into coaching. And when I started coaching, I pretty immediately started coaching people that had MS. And I got kind of introduced into a network of doctors and nonprofits. And we have here, we have the National MS Society, which is one of them, and the MS Society of America. And I was working as a consultant. So I'd come in and do their workshops for them and run classes for them and do one-on-one coaching for them and all that kind of stuff. So I was working a lot with people who were pretty newly diagnosed or weren't really understanding so much of how to be resilient, how to have a good mindset, how to have a positive mindset, what that means. And I was teaching it so much and I was working with a lot of people who were grappling for the first time with this idea of who am I now that I have this diagnosis? What does my life look like? It was a really interesting thing to find because I thought I was coming on to tell people about like, this is what positive mindset is and let's help you with your career and let's help you write you know, a letter asking for different accommodations or whatever it is. And on the flip side, it's people that wanted to know about how to keep a positive mindset and how to understand really what their role is in their in their lives now that they have this chronic illness and what's going on. And I just saw kind of a theme with how I was helping people. And I love writing. I've always loved writing. And a very natural step for me was to write a book. And then because I'm a glutton for punishment, I wrote a second (laughs) book. (laughs) And what are the books called? One is Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis. Yes. And the second one is called Stop Carrying the Weight of Your MS. And the first one is, I mean, both of them talk about us as like a holistic, on a holistic wellness journey. But the first book, Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis, is a little bit more focused on mindset. And the second one is a little bit more focused on getting in touch with your body and listening to your body and learning how to listen to your body. Wow. I am going to be honest. I haven't read those books, but I am definitely going to put them on my list. I have, I'm collecting this list of all these guests that I interview Mm -hmm. and the list is growing by the day because it seems like we're bringing on a lot of authors And so I'm absolutely committing to that, that next time we speak, I'm going to have a look at that because, you know, it's one of the things that we've seen in this series, particularly is people coming on that have been given a diagnosis. And like you said, it's, what does that mean now? Who am I now? Am I still the same person? Has it changed? What does it mean? You know, I think a lot of that self-identity kind of questions come up for people around that, let alone the grief and the challenge of mapping their way through the medical, you know, sphere of getting diagnosis, follow-ups, doctors, you know, tests, and and I'm sure we're going to get into all of that today. Yeah. So you said you were in finance and you went across to coaching. Tell me about that. Like why the shift? What happened? Did something just an alarm bell go off or a flashlight? You know what? I'll raise you that. I was actually at a university in a graduate program for early childhood disorders and human development. So I was in school studying on actually on a PhD track. I wanted to go into psychology, but I was studying early childhood disorders here is the little, little guys like zero to three who are born with things like sensory processing disorders, Down syndrome, autism, all that kind of stuff. And I was going in and helping them and their families 
figure out a therapy plan to help them with their development. Because when you work with kids that are at young, you can really, really help a lot yes. of things if you get in there early. So I started there. <laughs> and then actually, as a result of my diagnosis, I left my program. I came back. I finished my program. But at the time when I was diagnosed, I left because I kind of thought, I don't really have the luxury of being a student right now. You know, I'd had this diagnosis. I was thinking about who I am now, what my career path is going to be, what my life is going to look like, mm. because everything has then changed. And so when I left, my first goal was to get a good job, get money, get insurance, get to the point where I can then help myself if I need to pay for something or do some therapies or whatever. I'm not held back because I'm a starving student. <laughs> and so yeah. I left and I went. At the time, there was... Uh, over here, there was just a huge bubble and finance was the moneymaker, no pun intended. And so I went into finance. <laughs> I've just, you know, I've I've always liked things like um, psychology and, and helping people and that more right brain kind of creative yeah. part. But I'm also kind of a numbers nerd. And I've also been very, I've always been very comfortable around numbers and money and math and spreadsheets and things like that. So going into something like finance was logically, it was a good move. It was an easy move. At the same time, finance is just, it's crazy. It's, it is, I mean, it's, I don't know if you've ever seen the Wolf of Wall Street, but like, that's what it is. It really is Gordon Gecko. It really is just a cutthroat super high stressed environment, super crazy, just and so I went there and at first it helped me because it helped me get my feet under me, get my finances straight so I could kind of get in and, and do some things that really helped me. And then all of a sudden it didn't help me because I was in this really high stress environment that was continuously stressing me out and I had to get out. And so I then that's kind of how I found my way to to coaching because I thought I thought coaching was going to tell me I really did it for myself. I thought it was going to tell me what my next move is, like what it, yeah. what my next career is going to look like. And then I realized like, oh, this is my next career. So yeah, a lot of changes. <laughs> so many changes, but you can see how when you tell your story, you can kind of see how the dots connected. You know, when you first said mm -hmm. finance, it's going from working with people and helping people into something that's so tangible and mathematical and data-driven, so more task-driven, but then you circle back around to the people. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes. So I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. And so today we really wanted to chat about one of the challenges you faced. And we've already mentioned a few times throughout this episode already with MS. And I thought a really good place to start here might actually be talking around, I think most of our listeners will know what MS is. And I was thinking how wonderful it is if they all know, you know, like where how great it is that we've got an awareness across the world about what MS is. But just in case someone mm -hmm. doesn't know, can we start at the beginning? Like, what is MS? how you found out, how you got diagnosed, what were the signs and symptoms before you even got diagnosed and kind of go from there? Yeah, absolutely. MS is multiple sclerosis. It's an autoimmune disorder. 
And there's a lot of different autoimmune disorders. There's things like lupus, Crohn's, all, all sorts of things. And the basic foundation of an autoimmune disorder is your immune system is super, super active. Like it's just, it's really, really high. And in being so high, it is attacking parts of your body. Yeah, it's not out of <laughs> out of malice. It's just it there is nothing necessarily to attack. And so then it's turning on parts of your body. And depending on what autoimmune disorder you have is what system basically your immune system is attacking. So with something like lupus, for instance, your the system that it's attacking is your organs. And with MS, the system is the central nervous system that your immune system is attacking. And so when you have something like MS or any kind of autoimmune disorder, the way it attacks is it starts, MS starts to wear down the nerves in the central nervous system. So every nerve is if you think about like a wire, like if you're just like plugging in a wire, you've got the actual wires and then it's covered with like plastic or rubber. I don't know what that is. I guess plastic, right? To keep all the wires together. That's basically what our neurons look like. And so they fire very quickly because they're protected by this cover. And with MS, the immune system is overacting. It's attacking the central nervous system. And it's doing that by wearing down the cover on the neurons. And so it's slowing down the neurons. So that's kind of a crash course in what it does. Yeah, but a great explanation. Thank you. I mm. realized I put you on the spot when I was like, so what's your medical uh, definition <laughs> of MS? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, but I love that. And I really love hearing how people describe it as well, because yeah. when we hear it in different language through different eyes, it can really help consolidate it for each sure. of us hearing it right. differently. Yeah. So how did you find out? Like, did something happen initially or? MS is interesting. I think it's getting better. I was diagnosed 22 years ago. So it was a little different. And my MS, a lot of people's MS is called relapsing remitting, which means you have a symptom for like a month or so, and then it just kind of goes away on its own. And so a lot of times, and what happened with me looking back, I'll have a symptom like I had kind of tingling, like uh, pins and needles, if you've had pins and needles, and it feels like that. And I was like, well, something weird is going on. And I went to the doctor and he's like, oh, it's probably just a condensed spine, disc, something, something. And I was like, well, I don't know. But before we really looked into it further, it went away. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, well, psh, it's gone. That's cool. Let's just go on. And so I that was probably my first symptom was something like that. And because it goes away and it happens with people and then it can go away, nothing can happen for months and months. And when I was diagnosed, what I had was something called optic neuritis. And so the optic nerve in the back of your eye gets inflamed. And when that happens, you can't really see your vision is affected. And so I literally one day when I was in school, I was just walking down the hallway and I went to brush my hair out of my face and I poked my eye, you know, I was, as one does when, <laughs> when you're walking and not paying attention and you're just, you know. And so I, and it was pretty hard. And so it was okay. And then later that night, my vision just started shutting down. It was like, if you are looking at a window and you have a window shade that you like pull down from top to bottom, that's what my vision did in that eye. 
So I thought, oh, wow, I must have poked myself harder than I thought. Yeah. Went to the optometrist, I guess, or ophthalmologist. She looked in and she, I don't know if she knew what it was, but she knew right away that it was something nerve related. And she literally walked me down the hall to a neuro ophthalmologist who then looked at my eye and he knew what it was. And optic neuritis like this is a pretty telltale sign of MS. It's a pretty common, not everybody has it. MS is fun where it's it can be very unique and, and no two people are going to have the same symptoms or manifestation of MS. But something like optic neuritis happens quite often. And if you see it, it's a it's a good chance that it's MS. And so he saw that and he knew right away. So he was the one who called my neurologist, who is my MS specialist for a very long time. And that's when I was diagnosed. And what happened for you with the diagnosis? Like, did you receive the information and get to work on finding out as much as you can about it? Did you drop? Did you, you know, is that when you quit your uni? Like, how was it for you once you got that done? Because you would have been quite young. I was 22. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah. was 22. And I, I don't think I'd ever really heard about it. I didn't really know what it was. When I was diagnosed, I was admitted to the hospital and put on steroids immediately because we had to stop the inflammation in that eye. And so I basically immediately started treatment and learned a little bit about it. I talked a lot with my MS specialist about it, who's wonderful. He's still a good friend of mine. And I learned they had some people kind of come in until I had, you know, I, I can't remember if she was a nurse or a social worker or what she was. I In my mind, she's like the MS welcome wagon. <laughs> Do you guys have the welcome wagon <laughs> where it's like she came in and she's like, welcome to MS. Here's all the things you can't do anymore and like ran down the list of stuff. And so immediately I was like, mm, I don't know about that. What sort of things were on the list? Like, you know, even when you say that, I think. Everything. It was you can no longer drink. You can no longer stay out late. You can no longer stress out. You can no longer do anything that is going to, you know, require a lot of exertion. I mean, anything, anything. There's a lot of can'ts in there. It was all about the can't, right? So it was the the really the straw that broke the camel's back for me was when she said you can no longer take hot showers because a lot of times people with MS will have trouble with heat. And it's, you know, it's in various severities. I have never actually, like for me, it's got to be a super hot sauna for me to be like, okay, I'm out. Certainly when I was first diagnosed, I didn't have any problems. And so when she was like, you can no longer take hot showers, that's when I totally just called BS. I was like, but I don't have problems. I was like, I just took a hot shower like 12 hours ago. It was fine. What are you talking about? And she started saying things like, you can't live in a two-story house because you're going to have to get ready because you're going to have a wheelchair and just all sorts of things. The part that I'm like struggling with as you say that is like, where's the support and the hope in that conversation? It's like, you've been diagnosed now, here's how your life's going to change, which is important information, but you're just getting all the things you can't do, which you've already said MS is so individualized. So how do they know that you can't do that? Like maybe the majority of people can't, but that they're just already putting so many right. like limitations on you. Well, and I'm I'm actually I, I'm pretty grateful that she did because like we said, I was young, I was twenty-two. When you're diagnosed, you're in such a vulnerable place. I was I mean, I physically couldn't see. 
really out of one like one eye I could see the other one it's like forget it I was on steroids which for those people ugh, <laughs> we were having horrible. this conversation this morning my daughter's yes. on steroids we are like Yuck. it's a special oh. kind of hell they work but it's a special kind of hell so I'm in the hospital on like an IV for the first time I don't know what's going on you're in this super vulnerable space you're talking to someone who's supposed to be the authority figure that knows everything informing you about something that you don't know about and it's being done from this deficit model of here's everything and and just seeing that and realizing that all of these things or a lot of these things that she's listing off just wasn't true for me like I was fine with heat I didn't have fatigue. I wasn't really worried about some of the things that she was talking about. You know, my my illness is invisible. And it was that. And I know that she was well-meaning. I know that she cared. I'm not necessarily knocking her. What I'm knocking is, I think, the industry standard the lack of curiosity about the individual person. So she was just giving me this huge rundown of here's everything you can't do. Not one time did she ask me a question about myself. Mm. Not one time. And then she was telling me all these things that like as of right now, because of this diagnosis on your chart, you can't do because you're going to have problems with it. And I was like, you don't even know me. You know, thankfully, I was a pretty, uh, you know, I think it's why I like zebra so much is because I, you know, especially back when I was 22, that's not far from being a teenager. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was a pretty rebellious, you can't tell me what to do type of a teenager. And so all of a sudden, here's this woman trying to tell me what to do. And I'm like, and you don't even know me. I just met you 10 minutes ago. You're saying all these things that it's like, you might as well be talking to a different person. And because of that, I felt comfortable saying, you know what? No, this is going to be my story. I'm not going to let these people tell me what this is going to be like. And that was, that kind of kicked off me taking control of what my life with MS was going to look like. And what did that start to look like? How did you integrate that information into your world going forwards? You know, slowly, I was pretty cautious. I was pretty protective of myself as far as what information I did let in. Because from this conversation and from the things that she was trying to say, I didn't have a lot of trust in what I was going to find I didn't have a lot of trust in what I was going to Google and what the information was going to be. And so I was very cautious about what I took in. And I think also that that was pretty good because what I didn't do was soak in all of these fears and all of these worst case scenarios and things that have happened to people with MS that have not happened to me. And so I think I was cautious. I was protective and I immediately hit the ground running, honestly, literally, because I was like, okay, what can I do? What can I change about my life right now that can help me? And so the first thing I was like, okay, I'm going to start a workout plan. I started lifting weights. I got into running. I got into all sorts of different things. I seriously looked at things and said, okay, I'm going to leave my program after this semester and I'm going to get something with good insurance and good pay so I can pay for all these other things that I want to look into. I looked into nutrition. I looked into, you know, I, I did a lot to change my lifestyle and change my nutrition and try to heal as much as possible. And I also worked very closely with my neurologist because he was not in that deficit model. He He's different. And I was very, very lucky to have found him because he doesn't talk about that. He talks about what you can do. And he talks about the science and all of, you know, I got in early on a lot of things that we're just now learning about, like how great vitamin D is and all that. 
I did that 22 years ago. I was doing massive amounts of vitamin D. And Do you know, what I'm hearing though, as you're talking is it's almost the word that's coming up is investigator. It's almost mm-hmm. like you became the investigator of your life and your world and yeah. and really looked at it with an open mindset around, okay, well, let's get all the information and work out what fits for me with what I know mm-hmm. right now, which I love because when we think about even this podcast and the journey it's been on already, it's a common theme around what helps people propel them into taking action. And I sometimes think it's that, what you just named right there is that investigator approach. You know, no one cares more about your life than you do, but no one can walk the mile for you either. Yeah. I think it was something that very early on, I took the reins very early on. And again, that, you know, with that nurse or the, you know, the, the, the community, even though it's a great community with the the chronic illness and disease specific things like support groups and whatnot, I realized that I had to be in charge of my story. I couldn't let the community, I couldn't let the, uh, you know, what people were saying and other people's stories about MS, I couldn't let that be my story. I realized from the very beginning that I had to take control. I had to take, I always look at it as like sitting at the head of my table. Like I have this boardroom table that I'm at the head of. And I was like, okay, I need to fill that up with people that I want. And I need to, this wasn't like I woke up the next day after my diagnosis and this is it, right? This is something that happened after some time. But from the very beginning, one thing I did know was I had to take control of my story and my idea of what this was going to be like. And get to work by the sounds of it as well. You also got to work. Sure. Like that wasn't just in the head. It was like you got action focused, you know, like yeah, what can I read, yeah. what can I learn, what can I do, going to what the gym and getting your program, like so many mm-hmm. things I'm already hearing. Did you collect gold little nuggets of advice along the way? Yeah. For sure. One thing I love doing is reading something, to, like reading a business book and then taking a nugget from a business book and applying it to my life and being oh my like, God, oh, we no, were, this. <laughs> we were talking about this yesterday. That's my new kind of like area. It's like how do we take I business strategy it. and apply it to well-being and performance? Like, It's amazing. There's so much. There's it's so much, right? Like why are we not like – transferring everything across through everything, you know, fitness yeah. to mindset, to business. To, 100%. We can learn from the athletes. We can learn from our coaches. It's We are humans walking in the world. Oh, my God, we could have a whole podcast, but that is not why we're I here know. today. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing, and I already kind of alluded to it, that I picked up from really, I think, from my finance days because I was doing a lot of work with people on like family businesses and things like that. And so we were working with a lot of people that had advisory boards. And I learned about advisory boards and I realized that I needed to apply that to my health. Like I needed an advisory board. And I had already kind of put one together without realizing it before, like when I was in my on my career track, when I was looking at schools, when I was looking at my career and where I wanted to go and and my master's and my PhD and all that kind of stuff, I had one. I just didn't realize it. And so when I was working on what to do with my health and how to make changes and who to listen to, I realized like I put together an advisory board. And one that was, you know, I changed it. You know, I would fire people. (laughs) This is all like mental, right? This is not like. (laughs) It's so good though. (laughs) (laughs) Like I didn't actually have people that like I took notes with and had like meetings with. Although some of them were real people. Some of them were like 
Albert Bandura, who, you know, he's long gone. But I would always think about it like that. Like who's on my, like I always say, like who's sitting at my table? Who's on my on my advisory board that's going to help me with what it is that I need to put together? And so that's a little nugget that's always, always stuck with me. And I think another one is something that I first <laughs> I first learned in fashion when I was shopping with my sister, actually, long time ago. Like I found something, I think it was like a sweater or something, I don't know. And I was like, oh my God, I love this. This is the perfect sweater. It fits me perfectly. This is like great style. And my sister goes, you know what? Get it in blue. And I was like, what? And she goes, if you find something you like, don't be afraid to get it in different colors. <laughs> you know, because if you like it, you're going to use it in different colors. And in a weird way, and this is like an intro into my mind and the weirdness of my mind, but I look at that and I, I translated that to look, if there's something that you like, there's a lot of different ways that you can use it. There's more colors than just one. And so what I talk about this with like my clients and how I apply it to my life is, so say you want to start a meditation practice because of all the benefits and you learned in a group setting where you all sat down and maybe you had somebody that was narrating something, you know, while you were meditating, he was talking through it and you were listening to your breath and you were sitting in a certain way and it was this magical moment and you thought, I'm going to do this every day for the rest of my life. This is fantastic. And so you start your meditation practice and you start your habit and maybe like a week into it, you're like, you know what? I'm not really doing so well with this anymore. I'm not really staying in it. I can't do more than a couple of minutes. I'm getting antsy. Maybe meditation's not my thing. Maybe I'm going to quit. When I look at it and I think, okay, there's more than one color here. There's more than one way to meditate. So look at what is it that you don't like and look at a different type of meditation. So for me, when I started meditation, I was like, okay, I can't sit here. Like it's just not working for me. So I learned walking meditation. And that was this whole new world for me to be able to stay in the meditation, stay in that world, get all those great benefits. You're just doing it a different way. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of one of those weird things that has always stuck with me. And also when you were saying that, I was thinking maybe perhaps you can't do meditation on your own and maybe you need a group environment or like yeah. you said, go for a walk. And I think that's where mm -hmm. it's starting to layer it with the smart. It's like, you know, not giving up just because something didn't work that time in that moment, yes. maybe getting curious about when has it worked or is there something different about this scenario or is there something I haven't tried? Like, mm -hmm. have I not tried this in this way over here or with right. this person over there. Yeah. I mean, it's like you were saying before, it's this idea of like, okay, how can I still do it, but change it a little bit? Mm. It's like, oh, wait, mm. I can change it. And you're right. Like maybe it is that you loved the group aspect of it. Maybe it is that you liked the narration. You know, some people like to meditate to a certain narration. Maybe it is that it was easy to sit, but really you need to be moving. And so it's like, mm. don't be afraid to change it because you're not quitting you're not stopping. You're still doing the core of what you want to do. You're just trying to change it to make it so you stay in it and you stay and get the benefit. I want to know how many people go and try walking meditation after this conversation though, it's because for many people, they may never have favorite. heard of that. I know. It's my ha favorite in the whole world. I'm going to circle back to the MS, but I want to just ask on that because some people will be interested. If they want to do what, where can they start? You can start by like literally, you don't even have to be walking. 
which is so interesting. Like I liked the walking part because I liked the movement, but the core of a walking meditation is that you are, obviously your eyes are open and you're looking at your environment and you are training yourself to look at it without any kind of labeling, without any kind of preconceived notion uh, of anything. So I like, for example, there was this lamppost kind of at the end of my street and it had just a million little staples in it from people stapling up different flyers and all that kind of stuff. And they would tear the flyers down and all these staples would stay. And I remember when I got really good at looking at things without labeling. So I would be looking at this and I wouldn't be thinking, oh, this is a lamppost with staples in it. I would just be looking at it. And the idea is you're just accepting it for what it, you're just, you're just looking at it. You're not even thinking like this is brown. You're just looking at it with a very clean slate and a very open mind. And things become so beautiful. Like this post of wood with a million staples in it with little ripped off pieces of paper became one of the most amazing things. And I still think back at how I looked at it because I was in that meditative state where I wasn't labeling it. I wasn't doing anything besides just looking at it and allowing it to be what it was. It became so beautiful. And that to me is the walking meditation. Yeah. And obviously you can go and Google walking meditations mm -hmm. and have someone like talk you through that, right? Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. there's different ways you can do different walking meditations. That's just the one yeah. that I had learned about. And I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. And yeah. so then, you know, as you're walking, your, your, your gaze just shifts and all of a sudden you're looking at a house or you're looking at the sidewalk or you're looking at a tree. And every single time you're just refocusing on like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to label that in my head because our, our minds immediately go like tree, sidewalk, dog, house. Yes. And to get and often that. there's a whole story and dialogue that goes with that, right? Yeah, it's not even just a tree; it's like a tree, and then there's a whole story, and we bring in all right. of our history and exactly. Yeah. So that's the clearing of the mind is to really mm. get to that point where you're not even saying, "Oh, that's a tree." You're not even saying that. You're just allowing it. Can you imagine if we were able to come into every conversation with all that, without all those preconceived ideas? Uh, <laughs> how nice that would amazing. be and how freeing. But yeah. I want to get back onto your experience because I feel mm. like we've only just touched on that. When you think through, because, you know, we're talking from a very, I guess, almost a professional standpoint at the moment, but coming back to you as Andrea that has been and walked this mile for 20 years, when you think back through that experience, what have been some of the really hard parts for you? some of the real grit, the challenge, the part that you really had to pull on every part of you to kind of get through? I think when it came to that idea of like, who am I now? I was definitely on the, you know, I grew up in a very academic family. I grew up in a very career focused family and I was on that track and I loved it. And so switching into something where I had no idea what was happening, like I had no idea what was ahead of me. And it was really hard to try to reorient myself because I knew I was never in de denial about MS. I was always dealing with it and doing something to help me. But at the same time, I realized it's like, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I have the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, I was 22. I was young. And so really figuring out just that first step of who I was and what my new thing was going to be was a really, really big challenge because I didn't have that confidence anymore. When I was in school, 
before my diagnosis and I knew what was going on, I had confidence. I was a good student. I was I was smart. I knew what was going on. I knew the system. I knew where I was going to go. I knew the next steps and what it was going to look like. And all of a sudden, it's like the rug is pulled out from you, right? And I wasn't, I hadn't, my confidence was gone. And, you know, it, it was questionable if it was really there to begin with. And maybe it was, was it just a false sense of confidence? Because I happened to know who I was in that one system. But now that that system was gone, it was almost like my security blanket was gone. It was almost like my sense of self was just, just melted away. And that was a really, really hard thing to see. You know, again, I'm looking, I'm in my early twenties. I'm looking at dating. I'm looking at going out with friends. I'm looking at, I wanted to get married at some point. I wanted to do all these things. And I had no idea. It was really, really scary. And, you know, going through that while also not having a good, like I had no foundation of feeling emotion, like I had no idea. I was very used to just stuffing those down. <laughs> and so going through that while trying to avoid all your emotions and avoid all your fear. And that was, I think, one of the challenging things because I was opening myself up to all these new possibilities and all these new changes and all these great things that were helping me. But at the same time, I was twisting myself up into this ball and really holding myself back in terms of allowing this new part of me to come forward because I was so scared and so afraid of what that was possibly going to look like. And I'm almost hearing of what people are going to think about you going oh, forward. Yeah. At 22, you know, will I find, will someone love me? Did that come up? So I was very, I was 22. I was just starting to date. I was just starting to form meaningful relationships outside of date, you know, within just friendships and within uh, working relationships. And I was very aware that whoever I let in to, you know, my inner circle, so to speak, it was almost like I didn't know if they were going to have to take care of me because I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I was very selective. I was selective of my friends. I, within that first, I don't know, I'd say like five, six years, a lot of my friendships either stayed the same and changed within the friendship or I was just no longer with them as friends because I felt myself go to a whole different level of, I can't play around anymore. Like no more games. Like I need serious relationships. I need to be, if I'm spending any type of emotional energy on anyone, it has to be with somebody that I know I can depend on for possibly things that are, that I don't even know are going to happen. It's almost like you're protecting yourself and pushing people away in the process, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. did you not let people, like you weren't letting people in, but you're also pushing people away because were they going to be on the whole journey with you and could they mm -hmm. hold up to that? Or what does that mean for them if you let them in? Like, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it really, it just changed. Yeah, I was very protective of who I let myself spend my time and energy with and how much I invested in people. Did that serve you? I think it did. Honestly, I really do. I think it did. I mean, who knows what would have happened when there were people that I didn't, I no longer talk to now. 
who knows if that would have happened in a normal course of life anyway. I just know, I guess I'm asking because I know there's a, I know particularly with diagnosis, a lot of people push their closest people away as well. Mm. You know, it's like, well, I'm not going to let you walk this journey with me because it's going to be too painful sometimes. It's almost that they can potentially even lose out on some relationships that they, that they mean a lot to them because they don't want the other person to hurt as well. I don't think I did that. I think the the close relationships that I had, it's almost like once they, in a way, this sounds horrible, but once in a way they, they proved themselves to me that they could handle it if something happened, then I like we're tight. Like one of my closest, closest friends, it's like we've been friends since freshman year of college. And so she was with me pre-diagnosis and during my diagnosis and she, you know, is still one of my closest. I saw the difference was, you know, as you meet new people, as you have new friends or new work friends or new people that you're dating, I would assess maybe too quickly. I don't know whether or not I thought they were kind of up to it. Like, do I think this person is going to be able to be on this level? And if they weren't, like I would kind of keep them as like, you would say acquaintance. In a, yeah. an acquaintance or let's just date a couple of times and like have fun, but you're not going to make the cut. You're not going to go meet my parents, <laughs> you know? And so I would judge that. And did you have boyfriends along the way? Did you have partners along the way? I had guys that I dated along the way. There was a lot of that. There was there was a lot of, I definitely dated, but I didn't get serious with people. Did you tell them? Was it something that you talked about? And how did you broach that subject? You know, I guess for people out there that are listening that might be in this right now, like we're talking about it from a long time ago, but some people are navigating that right now as as they're listening. How do they have the conversation? When do they have the conversation? What Mm -hmm. does the conversation look like? Mm -hmm. I think for me, that was all a part of kind of the level where I was. I was never someone who like kept my diagnosis from people. The only time I really kept my diagnosis from people was in work because when I was diagnosed, uh, especially insurance was a little bit different. It was a little bit more precarious when you had any kind of a, they called it a pre-existing disorder. It could really mess you up. It could give your insurance a chance to not cover you. It was actually a little dangerous. So when it came to like work, and that kind of stuff, I did not tell a lot of people. I told the people who needed to know, and then I zipped up about it because I didn't want it to affect getting fired, which could happen, or losing insurance. So that, I think, is like a different thing. When it came to my social life and just my personal life, I was very open about it. So I don't think there was ever... If I was just like having fun and just dating somebody or just going out, like I didn't, I wasn't talking about it all the time, it would definitely be something if I knew it was more of a friend or someone that I was with a little bit more long-term, I would tell about, but I was always very open about because I never saw the benefit of not saying anything because you might as well, right? Because at some point they're going to find out. Yeah. So it's, it, that was part of my like, are you, are you in this for the long haul? Let's tell you and see how you act. Part of the test. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. Do you right. pass phase one? <laughs> yes. Do you pass phase two? Yes. Okay. Which I'm Let's really a lot coffee. nicer than that. <laughs> it makes me sound like I'm not. No, no, no. I totally get it. Um, I used to do the same thing for a whole different reason from my childhood background, but I mm. literally used to in my head be like, if you pass the test, you can stay in my world. I think yes. that's 
as an adult washed away a lot more from my life. But mm-hmm. in my early 20s, I tested and measured everyone that came into my life. How 100%. can you hold this space? Are you strong enough to hold my story? If you're not, you don't get in the inner circle. Mm-hmm. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Mm. And I'm thinking about living with it for 20 years. I'm thinking about there would be some really big lessons in that space. If you were to pick one, what for you has been the biggest lesson and what are you taking away from that? I think in in 22 years, actually, it's been since 2000 that I've had this. My biggest lesson is something that I only really recently came to, which is this idea of kindness and acceptance of myself, of where I am, what's going on. I think part of that comes just from maturity and just from from growing. And I think part of that comes from understanding how necessary it is. And I had kind of a, a slow roll to this point because I, you know, from when I was in school, back before my diagnosis, I was on a path to psychology. I love the brain. I love not just the brain, but like the mind and how we're thinking about things and what goes on. And so I have always known that how we look at things really affects our present. It it affects our life. And so I've always been really interested in mindset, especially when I was looking at the coach training and getting into that, I realized just how important our belief systems are, just how important it is as far as how we want to look at certain things. I think sometimes I did it from a instinctive place, like when I had that nurse tell me all these things and I thought, no, 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 I'm not taking that. That's not that's not going to be my story. I instinctively took ownership of my own mindset and then I started learning about mindset and just how impactful it is and how important and just fascinating it is and can really help you do so many things from creating new habits to being comfortable with change to learning new things. And as I've gotten through that, I've gotten closer and closer to the point of really noticing this dialogue that we have in our heads and how we talk to ourselves and what that whole ecosystem is like. Mm. And is it supporting you? Is it kind? Is it tough love? Is it a little bit mean? Is it our third grade PE coaches voice in our head, right? Like it's really been something that I've focused in on as I've looked more and more at mindset that I think is really, really fascinating and kind of at that epicenter of your mindset is what that dialogue is. Mm. And so this idea of looking at how you're talking to yourself and taking that even further to being kind, being accepting, being supportive, that whole piece has been one of the biggest takeaways that I've had from my entire journey with this diagnosis. And it's been something that I that I dove into pretty quickly, even without knowing, and have just been constantly developing this whole entire time. And I love the way you described it as an ecosystem, mm. you know, because that's so true. And I think what you're talking about is it's, we often say awareness is key, but it's not just awareness of one line. It's awareness of the whole ecosystem and how mm. does it show up in your world and what does it look like when it's challenged? What does it look like when you're vulnerable? What does it look like when you're in a space of success? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's understanding it at all levels at all times 
with all its voices, whether mm-hmm. that be the coaching voice or the critic voice or, you know, however you want to describe it. Right. But really understanding that and then you're talking about that kindness piece and I think it's often where you get to as you start to, I guess, study or learn about or, or get curious about that investigator that we spoke about around mindset and in a chat is you do end up doing a circle and coming back to, ah. Oh, You've got to be kind. <laughs> like mm. you're the only person that can be kind to yourself inside your head. No yes. one else can be. Yes. And it comes from also looking at what are the little things that I've gotten used to that I say to myself all the time, sometimes your entire life, that actually aren't that nice. Like what is it that I've been doing that I thought was motivating me or I thought was being a realist? or I thought was going to help me and I just have to tell myself the truth. Like really look at those and think about, is that something that really makes me feel comfortable or confident or loved? Like really looking at those things that you've been used to yourself saying all the time that you don't even realize you've been saying to yourself all the time. I think this is where a counselor and a coach is great because they hold the mirror up to you. Sometimes it's really hard to pull those stories and language out of your own head because mm-hmm. it's your everyday. You live mm-hmm. with it. You've gotten so used to it. It's like a pair of Ugg boots. It just comes on. It's comfortable. Even if it's unresourceful for you, it's comfortable. You know <laughs> it. It's familiar, you know. And yeah. I think sometimes that's the wonderful thing. Not even You don't even need to have an external person. You can have an external strategy like a workbook or a journal mm-hmm. or, you know, you can do it that way as well. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think when people hear us say this, it, you may need a hand in this space. Yeah. It's something that I find is – it's hard to just dive in because mm. sometimes we don't even want to know what's going on, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Or it's, what do we do with it when we find it? Yeah, it's this <laughs> idea of what it, you know, not only like, I can't believe I've been saying these things. What does it say about me that I've been saying these things to myself, <laughs> right? It can really spiral. And a lot of times it's, we got to dip the toe in the water. We can't just dive into it because sometimes, I mean, I know for me, it was a bloodbath up there. It was crazy. All the things that I was saying to myself that I thought was totally normal. Everybody did it. Everybody talks to themselves. And and I didn't even, it, you know, to me, the, the change in what I like how I talk to myself now versus how I talk to myself even five years ago is astronomical. And so sometimes diving right in is too much. So just take, you know, something we can do, you mentioned journaling, is just notice things that you say to yourself. Doesn't matter. They don't have to be mean things. You don't have to hunt for something that's really mean. Just notice things that you say to yourself all day. Because we say the same things, right? We don't have, we have tens of thousands of thoughts in our heads every day, but they're not all unique thoughts. A lot of times, especially if it's something that we've been saying to ourselves, it's just kind of on this ticker tape. And so just pull those out. So if you say to yourself, gosh, I, you know, I don't look great in these jeans, write that down. If you say to yourself, like, wow, I've got a good hair, like my hair's looking good today, write that down right? Write down all these different things that you say, and then you can start to notice. The more you write things down, the more you put yourself in that noticing type of observer type of a role. And so you hear more and more and you can start to tick off like, oh, there's that comment again about my hair. There's that comment about how I'm looking in my jeans or my 
shorts or whatever it is. And then as you start to do that, you can really start to look at, okay, what are some of these thoughts that don't make me feel so good? How do I feel when I tell myself this? Another a quicker way you can do is literally you can look in the mirror, literally look in your mirror and you can ask yourself, like, how do I feel after I look in the mirror? That's always a good way to notice, maybe not necessarily exactly what you're saying, but that you're saying something that isn't so great. Because mm-hmm. when you look in the mirror, because some people like I, I'll ask, okay, I want you to look at yourself in the mirror, like look yourself in the eyes in the mirror, not just like looking at your hair or looking at whatever, but like look yourself in the eye. And some people can't do it. I was just going to say that. I was like, you know, we say this, I would love everyone to try it. And mm-hmm. and if you're there and that's a challenge for you, you're not alone in that space. No, like, not at all. A lot of people have never looked at themselves. In never the like, looked at themselves in the eye. Yeah, it can be confronting. It can be confronting, but that's also a good way to really see what is it that you're saying, right? You can start asking, why don't I want to look myself in the eye? How do I feel about it? If I do, you know, I mean, you can start before you even do it. You can say, oh gosh, I don't want to do that. Why? Why don't I want to do that? And sometimes what we're thinking about ourselves can kind of come out. Or if we do look ourselves in the eye, it can be like, oh, how am I feeling right now? Do I feel a pit in my stomach? Do I feel you know, sad? What is it that I'm feeling? And that's a good indicator of like, okay, I'm probably not saying anything too nice. And that's a good entryway into thinking or into knowing what you're thinking about yourself or because whatever it is that you're thinking when you look in the mirror, again, that is not a unique thought. That thought is in your head. It's just a way of pulling it out and really looking at it and noticing that this is what the, the thought is. And, you know, by the way, I take people, let's go further. After you do look yourself in the eye, after you do feel confident, why don't you give yourself a wink? Why don't you give yourself a smile? Right? Let's progress. <laughs> She's giving me a wink now, everyone. Just I am. In case you're wondering. <laughs> a, a wink, wink. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I do. I mean, I do it all the time. Yeah. Find right? that fun child. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm thinking... We've kind of opened this door for people. And if they go and do that, what do they do next <laughs> once they find that? <laughs> right. We've just opened this big door and someone might go and do this. What's going to yes. happen once they find those words and those sayings? Well, it, I, I mean, the short answer is opening the door is a big step. So it's not like, what is the step that I take once I open the door? The door opening is the step. You've already taken that step. And when we have thoughts in our brains and we just let them go, we're not really aware. We don't really know what we're saying to ourselves. It's again, it's like this ticker tape that kind of goes through your brain. It's not like we're questioning them. It's not like we're challenging them. We're just letting them run and they're creating all sorts of emotions. They're making us feel all sorts of ways because we are telling ourselves these things. We're just not really, we're like, I don't want to look at it, but it's still happening. So when you start taking things like that out of your head and putting it down, I would say, write it down, no matter what you do, you know, look at yourself in the mirror or just start writing it down, write it down like pen to paper. It instantly diffuses that thought, that comment. And you can really look at it. And I would say the, you know, some of the next steps you can take, depending on what you feel comfortable with, because this is not, you know, this is not easy. Like I said, dipping the toe in, this is not something to just launch into, but you can start to question it. Is that true? How do I feel when I say that? 
is that even my thought? Is that like, is it my voice that says this? Where did it come from? Yeah. Is it my third grade PE teacher's voice? Is it my, you know, my mom's voice, which (laughs) a lot of times it is, right? Like you Mm. can start to look at it as not this 100% truth that is never questioned living in your head. And all of a sudden it's something that might not be true, might not be something you want right? Ask yourself, do I want this thought? Do I feel like this is a good thought? Do I feel like this is something that helps me? Again, how do I feel when I think this thought? Because we're feeling this way every time this thought comes around. And once you do that, it's it can diffuse that thought. It doesn't mean all of a sudden we're going to magically stop thinking it, but it increases the chance that we're going to catch when we do say it. And we're going to question it and say, wait, oh, there's that thought again. Gosh. And we can say, wow, I didn't realize how often I thought this. And then you can start saying, oh, there's that thought. I don't really like this thought. I don't really believe this thought. It's not really true. And I think too, when you said you can collect the evidence for it, you know, if you do need to, you can fact check against it and then you can come over the top. And this is kind of, as we get further along, it comes over the top with the more, which circles us back to when you said kindness and nurturing in your Mm. ecosystem, Mm -hmm. we come back and circle around to that kindness. Would you say this to a small child? Right. Would you say this to your best friend? Right. Probably not. So what would you say? You know, if you're not sure how to create like a nice kind, caring comment that can come over the top of it, think about, well, what would you say to someone else and try using that sentence initially? Yeah, that can definitely help. I think though the key to keep in mind when you're trying to replace that kindness is don't force yourself. If you're trying to tell yourself things that you don't really believe, it's not, you know, like if I try to sit and tell myself like I have blonde hair, no. I don't have blonde hair. Immediately, my brain would be like, that's not true. So you want to do something that you believe. And if you can't find something that you believe that's kind, that's okay. Go to something that's neutral or just diffuse the the comment that was kind of mean and take that as a win. You don't have to immediately launch into creating kindness. Sometimes, Sometimes you got to break down what's there first, and then move over to something that's a little more neutral because you always want to make sure that what you're replacing it with, your new thoughts, are things that you actually believe. Definitely, definitely. And the kindness may be the acknowledging and the the spotting it in the first place, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I could keep talking. And I think I say that every single time I get a guest on because I get so excited <laughs> I know, I and so involved and <laughs> I, um, I always forget to check the clock. But um, one thing that I really love to finish the podcast with, I mean, we've had a few little laughs. I, I We often <laughs> laugh a lot. So I was like, I didn't know whether we'd laugh the whole podcast, but we we're quite serious in there for a little while. Is <laughs> Who in your world truly makes you barely laugh? Who or it could be a what? It doesn't have to be a who, but um, oh, gosh, you know that real belly laugh, like the contagious giggle juice. If someone hears you laugh, they just start laughing as well. Yes, I love it. I I love to laugh. That was actually my first. You know, we talk about dipping the toe into things like emotions. That was my first segue into emotions. Is really just focusing on laughter and focusing on on that as as my first emotion that I really consciously felt. I. value humor. My husband makes me just belly laugh all the time. He's, we just get each other. We have that, 
you know, 13-year-old boy humor, I think, <laughs> were just totally inappropriate and on that same level. And nobody makes me laugh like him. I also really like things like stand-up. I love listening to comedians. I love finding those funny movies. Do you have a comedian? That you, do you have one or two that you'd mention if someone's looking for someone to listen to today who could yeah. tap into? I So someone I've just recently been listening to is J.R. Guzman, who's hilarious. He's just starting out. He's huge on like TikTok, and I think he's just starting to do the circuit. He's really funny. I just, he just totally makes me laugh. I love the classics. I love the classic, you know, like Eddie Murphy and Chris Rock and that, all that kind of stuff. Oh, that means we have come to an end. So thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story and sharing, I guess, there were lots of things that you talked about today that I know we haven't spoken about on this podcast, like for me, particularly that board, you know, that advisory board and the way that you describe that, so valuable. It may not work for everyone, but someone out there, that might be just the thing they need to hear today. Also that I really love the part about when you first got your diagnosis and and I forget what word you used, but it was like, what did you call her? The... Oh, the welcome, welcome wagon, the MS the welcome, welcome wagon. wagon. <laughs> yes. And just how, when you heard that, you were like, hang on a second, hang on, this isn't for me. And, and that's, you know, to trust that instinct and to trust that part that you know yourself and that sometimes when someone's delivering news to you or, or trying to give you a framework, you can work out whether it sits in your world as that lands or do you need to integrate it a different way? Yeah, it's really interesting because as you know, as a lot of people know, these things don't happen in a straight line, right? No. These don't happen where it's like, oh, this happened and then this happened and, you know, all of it happens at the same time. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. I love your podcast. I am honored to be on this and to talk to your audience. And I hope I have helped somebody to uh, either that just got a diagnosis or maybe who's lived with it and realized like, hey, I can still, I can still do something to improve what's going on. And absolutely jump over to your podcast, Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis. There's so much more information on everything we spoke about today. So yeah, if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, I want to know more, there's a whole series on it. Absolutely. I hope you all really enjoyed that episode with Andrea. The part that really stood out for me was the boardroom advisors. Who do you need around the table to help you navigate the changes in your life? I want to invite you to spend some time today thinking about who do you have in your corner and are they the right people? Is there someone missing that perhaps you could add? Who do you listen to around your own health and well-being? And of course, I always want you to remember to be kind to yourself, even if that's just for a moment. You can start small, but I want you to start. I want you to say one kind thing to yourself today. We have a pretty big episode coming up next. We are just in discussions at the moment as to split it in two or keep it as one interview. I was so blown away and wrapped up by her story. I completely lost track of time. So this will be our episode next week and I will see you all then. 
Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. Oh, 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 o